Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans. We are going to be in chapter 14 today. Um, shortly after the American Revolution, the um, uh, Americans were looking for uh, things to bring them together, to unify them politically and, and, and religious syncretism, which basically is trying to figure out all the different beliefs that are out there. How can we really have, can we have one belief as a nation, or do we just continue to have all the differences that are out there? It had become very obvious to them that in different colonies, different faiths, whether you might be Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian or whatever, or Friends or Quakers, it just all of a sudden was very exclusive. And so most, most churches could not just go and set up a church in a community because the whole community was going to be one denomination or the other. Matter of fact, it was even some of the, the states or the colonies were that way. After each of these churches kind of figured that they were the only ones going to heaven and everybody else was condemned to hell. The people thought there's got to be a different aspect to what is faith all about. And out of this divisive spirit arose a movement of people to try to get back to a unity of the church because that is, after all, something that Jesus had prayed for, right? That we would all be one as he and the Father would one. And they would get rid of all the divisiveness was out there, and, and they would try to focus on bringing Christianity back to just what does the Bible say we're supposed to do. Now, out of that movement, there came an organizational movement as well called the Restoration Movement, of which this church is a part of. So in the 1800, there was an agreement that was established between a few preachers uh, just on the western side of the Appalachian Mountains, and, and primarily in Kentucky and Tennessee. They came together. They were Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and others, and they came together, and they decided what we're going to do is we're going to set aside all of our denominational differences and focus on simply preaching the gospel message because the westward expansion and population going west was growing and increasing and people were coming to this new nation from all over the world and they wanted to share just simply the gospel message. As a result of that, what has become known as the Second Great Awakening took place in America. It was the Great Revival of America in the 1800s. Now, the Restoration Movement emerged out of this revival which was taking place on the frontier. Frustrated with their pursuit of really what the true church was that was authorized by God and, and the pursuit of that true church, people were kind of disenchanted by the plethora of denominations that were out there and that everybody was teaching and preaching something totally different. But they were trying to seek what is the pattern of the church supposed to really be like. As a result of that, there was this expressed basic desire. They were looking for unity, but they were also looking for what does the Bible say about the church? And so they were looking for this ideal pattern of the church. So many of the preachers came to understand that the unity of the church would be realized if the principles and practices of the New Testament were honestly put into place and that the church would just come together and grow. Now, in the early, mid-1800s, there was a movement even here in Union, and eventually there was a church started, 
back in 1886 of the first Christian church. However, I'm still trying to figure out what happened. About 1910, they closed their doors. And they sold their building. But in 1930, it was started again. And that is what this church is all about, where we came from. I'm often asked about our church and what the Christian church believes or what the restoration movement is all about. And if I had more time, I could really lay out a whole lot of stuff about it. But briefly, this is really what I come down when I try to communicate with people. Our church has basically four guiding principles in this movement. The first one is this. In essentials, there is unity. In non-essentials or, or matters of opinion, there's liberty. In all things, love. Another principle is this. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Another one is we have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And here's another one. We are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. Now from this movement, we became a church in Union, Missouri. And since that time, we have been trying to hold true to these things. Now, there are a lot of other aspects of being a church that we could get into, but I think these four really kind of encapsulate the idea of what we're trying to do as a church here in Union. Now, I say all of this to bring us to our passage of Scripture here in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Now, so far in our study, we've, we've looked at this letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. And he's written for the first eight chapters. They've really dealt with sanctification, and, and he, our justification. And he says it's justification by faith. It's apart from works. And that applies to both Jews and Gentiles. All right? We are justified by our faith, not by anything that we do. And that's chapters 1 through 8. Now, chapter 9, 10, and 11, he kind of does this little parenthetical statement on the side about how does God use this Jewish nation to bring about his redemption in this world. And so he takes a little moment to explain why was Jerusalem and, and, and Israel so important. It was all because he was using that family group that became a nation to bring Jesus into the world. Now chapters uh, 12 and 13 we just looked at, they also deal with sanctification, which is in essence what the Bible speaks and so we have to have a response and obedience to what it says. Now we're ready to explore chapter 14, and we'll get into chapter 15 as we move forward, where Paul is going to introduce another aspect of sanctification. Basically, it's this. We know in, in chapter 12 and 13, it's where the Bible speaks. Now in these two chapters, it's going to be where the Bible is silent. It's going to talk about issues that it really doesn't talk about issues. It's going to leave us with matters of opinion. So this is where Paul is going to deal with the issues where there is no thus saith the Lord statement on how should we live and how should we treat this and how should we do that. So he wants us to, to understand this. If there is nothing that has been commanded and nothing has been forbidden, how do we as Christians respond to that? Well, the truth is that there are things that we do in life that really make no difference when it comes to enhancing or detracting away from our faith, or for that matter, our salvation. So <clears throat> all those things simply are called matters of opinion. 
So we need to begin first off is what are matters of opinion? And how do we understand what a matter of opinion really is? Now, I think there's a couple things when I looked at this. First off, there are psychological or formal use of this terminology, opinion, all right? And, 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 and that is, it's, it's whatever anyone believes about anything, that's their opinion. So what do you believe about this? Oh, I believe this. What do you believe about? I don't believe that, but I believe this. That's all matters of opinion. What do I believe about it? And a lot of times we use this word to disagree with somebody when they go against what we believe, and they say, well, that's just your viewpoint. That's just your opinion, right? Sometimes people will incorrectly use the word opinion this way when they try to distinguish between what the Bible actually says, well, according to their interpretation, and what the other person's interpretation of the Bible is. Then there is what we would call epistemological or material use of this word opinion. In this, it is that, that this is where an opinion is a viewpoint on an issue for really which there is no right or wrong answer or position. There's, there's no true or false conclusion to it. It's just, does it really matter? And it's simply a matter of one's own personal preference, such as, are black olives the food of the devil? Or is, what? Or is bald really beautiful? Right? I mean, those are all matters of subjective opinion, right? Well, that's where we're dealing with when it comes to a lot of things, even in how we look at Scripture. So now let's take a look at how the word opinion is really used in a biblical context when it comes to determining religious facts. The problem is this. How do we decide what is not an opinion and what is fact or truth, all right? And what is acknowledged by God, it depends upon really what you believe about the Bible, all right? So if you do not accept the Bible as God's inerrant, infallible word that it is inspired by him, if you don't accept that, then ultimately, really, you are the one who makes the determination of what is right and wrong. You do what is right in your own eyes. That's really what we call relativism. If you're the one who is the judge and determines right and wrong, it's all based upon what's relative to you. However, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that is fully inspired by His Spirit, then when it makes statements, those have to be the principles by which we live by, true and false. Right. Here's where we need to understand this second principle of this movement that we're a part of, where the Bible speaks, we speak. All right, And where it is silent, we are silent. So if there's something with which the Bible speaks about, we have to take a stand on. And if there are areas which the Bible really doesn't speak about, then there is freedom to determine based upon your opinion. All right? Now, how does the Bible speak? Therefore, putting us into a position where we have to obey it. I think there are three ways that it speaks to us. First off, there are these direct statements or commands that the Bible gives us, or, or through logical reason, based upon what the Bible has presented, that we have to say, this is how we should live. 
This is what we should do. The second is basically general principles that, that must be applied in specific issues. And the Bible gets very clear about some of those things. And the third way is through apostolic precedent. In other words, it is, is it something that we can discover that the church was doing based upon what the apostles were teaching them to do, and therefore it plays out for us? And so we do the same thing. There appears to be two main ways in which we can be wrong about using opinion in a biblical context. First off, we can include too many things, too much in matters of opinion, and too little in required beliefs. Now, I think that's becoming very evident in the church today, that people just simply say, well, I believe in God, it doesn't matter anything else, right? And everything else, then, is opinion, as long as I believe that there's a God, but that's not what Scripture tells us, all right? I know that we want to make sure that, that there are essentials for salvation, that, that, that they're necessity, and that there are other things in Scripture that we need to take a, st- a firm stand on. It's things like you have to go back and look at the very beginning. Did God create the earth and the world and the universe, the stars and the moon and everything else? Did he actually have an Adam and an Eve, and it did life begin in humanity with Adam and Eve, or did it come from some other direction? We have to look at as well the, the role of Israel bringing in the Christ, but what about the role of Israel today after Christ? And what does the Bible say about that? Or, or even about the nature of human beings, and the list can go on and on. There are things that the, that the Scriptures speak to us about that we have to take as fact. And when we're trying to determine what we must believe, nothing Scripture affirms or denies or, re- or dismisses as opinion. Even the smallest truth statement in the Bible must be accepted by truth for us today. So everything the Bible affirms is essential, is essential for something, especially if it's going to deal with our relationship with Christ and our salvation. But there's also things that pertain to our spiritual maturity and how do we grow up in Christ. Things like when we appoint elders in a church. These are to be men that, that have a full understanding of the Word of God. Paul will tell Titus as he's working with setting up a church, he will say, when you appoint an elder, he must hold firm to the, truth wor- to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul says when you're going to put somebody in a position of leading in the church, They've got to trust the Bible as the Word of God, and they've got to lead out with that Scripture being truthful. And again, here we have, where Scripture speak, we speak. But only where it is silent are we free to form our own opinion about the subject. Now, now the second way that, that opinion can be used wrong in a biblical context is that we can include too little in matters of opinion. In other words, we count too many things as necessary, and we become, the wonderful terminology is legalistic, right? And we become judgmental of people because of the things that they're doing and and what they're saying and how they're dressing and how they're walking and how they're living and who they're hanging out with. And We can get extremely exclusive about those things. So how do we handle those areas in which the Bible is silent, where there is no command from God. This is what we call Christian 
liberty. Paul tells us where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But don't take your freedom as a way to indulge in anything that's out there. You can't just do all things just for the fact that God has set you free. All right? So welcome to the land where opposite opinions are equally valid, and we are free to make up our own minds. So in our text this morning, here in Romans chapter 14, we find that, that Paul says that we fall into two groups. He says we are either of the group of those who are weak, we see that there in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. I mean, these are those who treat matters of opinion, things which the Bible is silent about, as if those are things which the Bible has spoken about, and therefore, because of their opinion, you have to obey it, because they've already worked through all the details. Paul is really saying that this group of people is immature, they're weak, all right, and their faith. And then there are those who are strong. And we'll see that as we get into chapter 15, where it says in chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, now, these strong people are those of whom Paul views are able to rightly divide the Word of God in matters of necessity. All right? This group Paul views as mature and strong, and he says to them that they should rather kind of go with the flow with their weaker brother. It's not going to hurt them to go ahead and do the things that the weaker brother feels obligated to do because it's their opinion. Apparently, there was some conflict in the church in Rome. The church there was made up of people from different backgrounds. It, like New York City, it is a, a melting pot of people from all over the world were coming into Rome from various backgrounds, not only geographically and culturally, but also religiously. And now the church is beginning to make its impact in Rome itself. And so as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he's dealing with a group of people who come from a variety of ways. And he says that there are these, basically these two groups of people there that are weak and that are strong, and they're trying to get together in the church. The main point of our text here in Romans 14, 1 through 12 is this. Quit dividing over opinions. That's really what he's telling them. You guys are being so divisive over things that really don't matter at all. Quit being argumentative about all this stuff. He says there, there are three things that Paul gives us reasons why we must not be so judgmental. In verses 1, 2, and 3, he's going to tell us that we need to accept all because God has accepted them. And then in verses 4 through 9, he says that we need to serve. We are serving the same Lord and Master both sides are doing that. And finally, he says in verses 10 and 12 that we will all be judged by God on that day of judgment. We're all going to be there. So, how do we avoid opinionated arguments and division in the church? Because let me tell you, I've heard it in every church I've been in. People always have their opinion, and it can turn into an argument and become divisive. Well, first off, you need to accept those with whom you don't agree. What? Accept those with whom you don't agree because God has accepted them. Well, how dare God accept them? After all, He accepted me and my opinion matters, right? 
Let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So how do we know who is weak and who is strong? Well, Paul is kind of laying this out for us here. He's basically telling us that the weak ones are those who are trying to make a law out of their opinions. I believe this, and therefore it's got to be law. The weak in faith is not talking about their justifying faith in Jesus. What he's speaking about is their confusion as to what they believe about the issues of matters of opinion. So they lack true understanding of the Bible and how it applies to these opinions, and they have a weak or a faulty understanding of what is required to follow Jesus. And then there is the strong, and now those are those who have the ability to discern things which are essential and those things which are really insignificant opinions. And Paul introduces an example in this text, in these first three verses. He talks about meat and eating meat. Is it sinful or is it lawful to eat meat? Now, we still have people today that argue over whether they should eat meat or whether they should not eat meat. But there are apparently these two choices. There is somebody who eats anything, and Paul says he's strong, and he has the correct view according to Paul and according to Scripture as Paul interprets it. And then you've got the others who are, are vegetarians, and all they do is eat vegetables, and Paul says they are weak or they have this incorrect view in their opinions. So what is confusing about meat? I mean, what is the problem with meat? What's really the issue here in the New Testament church in Paul's day when it came to eating meat? Well, some pagan cults of that day and age, they would forbid their followers to eat meat. They had to know that the church was trying to disciple these people as well and bring them to Christ. But it is so hard to change your philosophies of life even when you're changing your faith. And so now you've got people who have become Christians and they've lived their life knowing that we're not supposed to eat meat because the religious says not, don't do that. And now I'm going to eat meat? And they struggle with it. You also have those that, that meat came from uh, an animal that was being sacrificed to idols within the temples there in Rome and around that community. And, and as a result of that, um, some of the Christians believed that it was wrong or even sinful to eat the meat that was sacrificed to some pagan god. And so they would say, don't eat that meat. But the problem was, in the marketplace, you wouldn't know what meat was actually part of that sacrificial system and what wasn't. And so, just don't eat any meat and play it safe, all right? And then you also had those who came from a Jewish background. And even in, in the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, God had established that certain meats were not permitted for his people to eat. 
And as some of these Jewish converts, as they entered into Christianity, they were still struggling with the fact of, is pork okay to eat? Or should I not eat bacon? Uh, because, uh, you know, God said not to in the Old Testament, but now I don't know. All right? And so they were struggling with surrendering their traditions of the meat restrictions based upon the Old Testament covenant. And yet there were also those who were very strong in their faith, and they understood that there really at this point are no restrictions based upon what Christ has said, and now in the New Testament church. And since there are no restrictions on any type of meat, they are free to eat. Paul will tell Titus again in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He will then tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul's response to all this, he simply says, You guys just need to learn to accept one another. All right? That's what he says in verse 3 of chapter 14. He said, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So these strong people in faith, these omnivores that will eat anything, he's telling them, you, You've got to be cautioned about not looking down or ridiculing or despising the people who are weak because they're vegetarians, you don't need to regard them with contempt, accept them because God has accepted them. And then to the weak, Paul is advising them that they should follow their conscience and not judge or condemn those who are strong that are sitting there eating the hamburger. All right? We all just need to stop having this holier-than-thou attitude, and we need to learn to accept each other whether we agree in these matters of opinion or not. After all, God has accepted us. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 15 here in Romans, Paul makes this statement. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, another way that we can avoid opinionated arguments and division within the church is to stop being so judgmental. I mean, only Jesus is Lord and Master. He's the one in control. You're not. All right? So we need to do what he says. So let's look at verses 4 through 9. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, 
Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Paul introduces in this little passage of Scripture this master-slave relationship in the discussion here at verse 4. And, and, and at this point, he helps us to understand what's going on a little bit better when it comes to our, our opinions. In this instance, the weak and the strong, they both have the same status. They both are slaves or servants of Christ. They don't make the rules. He does. They don't pass judgment. He does. They just have to live for Him. Only the owner or the master has the right to judge the conduct of his slaves. And Jesus is our master. He is our owner. He is our Lord. And it is His judgment call on who is right. We're told not to judge each other or accuse each other of wrongdoing in matters of opinion. However, this no judging rule it doesn't forbid us to sit down and have an honest dialogue about why we believe what we believe. We should be able to carry on a conversation about these areas in which we have a difference of opinion and explain why we are the way we are. Paul's definition of weak are the ones who need to change, and they are wrong when they forbid something that God has not forbidden. The strong should lovingly try to show them the error of their way, but not in a condemning fashion. They're not superior to them. They're on the same footing. You're both slaves of your master, Jesus Christ. Now remember, the issue here is opinions. And where matters of fact and of faith are concerned, we must call wrong, wrong, and sin, sin. We've got to stand on those things that God speaks about and commands us to do or not to do. But in these matters of opinion, let God be the judge in this. All right? In addition to what foods to eat or not to eat, Paul introduces this debate over there being special days in which they should celebrate or, or not celebrate. All right? And some days were more special than others in a sense of religious duty. The weak people in this passage, they are claiming that there are special days which we must regard and we must keep sacred in, in, in how we do it. But the strong people are saying, a day is a day. There's no day greater than any other day, so it doesn't matter. All right? Now, we could get a little touchy here. We're, we're you know, like six months out from Christmas. All right? Oh, don't step on that one, John. Yeah. The Bible doesn't say celebrate Christmas. It doesn't say celebrate Easter. It doesn't, celebrate, it doesn't say celebrate Fourth of July. It doesn't say any of those. It doesn't say in the New Testament that you have to celebrate anything. The only thing you celebrate is Christ and what he's done for us. But when we make it a matter of issue, then all of a sudden we got a problem. They were making this a matter of issue when it came to these days. You see, the huge problem with a lot of the Jewish converts is they had been raised in a system of certain days were special because God told them they were special. Right, there were days of, that the law of Moses told them that every Sabbath they had to take that day and do nothing. That there were new moons and festivals and feasts and there, there were years of jubilee and so they had to do all these things. But listen what he says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or 
with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a what? Shadow. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We have a tendency in our humanity to begin worshiping things rather than the one who created those things. It's not about new moon festivals. It's not about Sabbaths. It's not about years of Jubilee. It's not about all those things. It's about the substance of it, which is Christ. So Paul is telling us that such celebrations are really no longer a requirement of God. He says if you want to celebrate them, celebrate them. Enjoy them to the fullest. But don't condemn the guy who doesn't want to do it. And vice versa. If you don't think that we should celebrate those holidays, then great, don't celebrate those holidays. But if somebody else feels that it'd be a great thing to have that, then let them do that. If it's not going against Christ, against a statement that he has made, then it's all right. It's a matter of opinion. It's nothing to be so divisive about. You see, we make a decision in our mind as to what we believe will please the Lord the most. That's what he told us there in, in the last part of chapter 14, verse 5, when he says, each one should fully convince in his own mind. His own mind. Both the weak and the strong must have thought out what they believe to be fully convinced. Both the weak and the strong must do what they choose to do for the Lord's sake to honor Him. Everything we do should be done in a manner in which we bring honor to Jesus Christ. Paul says there in Colossians 3.17 again, listen to what he said, remember? And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. While everything we do is supposed to be focused on Christ, our lives are interwoven with each other, and therefore we find some conflict, and it impacts one another. So listen what Paul says here in verses 7, 8, and 9 of Romans 14. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, that we are His. See? For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Paul will tell the church in, in Philippi this, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 24. For to me... For to me, to live is Christ, and to die has gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is saying that the reason that we are still here in the flesh, or that he is still here in the flesh, is because of those around us and our ability to influence them for Christ. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. And if he were to say, John, today is the day, I'm like, I'm out of here. See ya. 
I'm not going to hold back anything. I'm ready to go. But I also know he's leaving me here in this world rather than taking me to heaven, which would be far better for me, for your account. So that I can somehow influence you to be faithful to God. And he's leaving you here because there's somebody in your life, around you, in your world, in your relationships that you have an influence on that you then can inspire them to know Christ more. So he's waiting because he doesn't want anybody to perish. And he wants you and me to use our words and to use our lives as an example for others to follow Christ. The final way that we can avoid opinionated arguments and division is, remember, you too are going to be judged by God. All right? Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each one of us will give an account to himself, to God. All right. To both the weak and the strong, Paul is saying, remember, you guys are family. You're brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's the one that's in charge and not you. All right. So why are you who are weak so eager to judge and condemn those who are strong? And why are you so who are so strong so eager to, to regard the weak people with contempt and hatred about this matter? Don't you get it? We're all going to be judged. Each one of us. It doesn't matter whether you're weak in Christ or you're strong in Christ. Whether your matters of opinion are significant or insignificant. We're all going to be judged by God. So he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right? You may think that because you gave your life to Christ, you don't have to go before God and account for yourself. That's not what Paul is saying. You're still going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God and say what you have done, good or evil, and how you've been treating your brother in Christ too. We're going to have to tell him, why was I so mean to John? That's what you're going to have to tell him. All right? Well, but truthfully. Or, or why were you so kind to John and me to Marisa? <laughs> well, you know. I mean, we've we got to figure all this out. See, on that day, every one of us is going to have to answer to God for how we've lived. And God swears by this by his own existence. All right? Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, when he makes this little statement there. He says, God swears by, for by myself, this is God speaking, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Bowing the knee is an act of allegiance or submission to somebody that's greater than you. Confessing with your mouth is an acknowledgement that he is God. And again, the emphasis is on the word every. Did you see that? Every knee shall bow, and every tongue 
shall confess. Nobody is exempt. You don't get a pass. There's no buy on Judgment Day. Every one of us. And whether we want to acknowledge Him here today that He is Christ, the Lord, there will be a day when you will have to acknowledge Him for who He is, whether you want to or not. So what kind of account will Christians have to give to God on that day? Well, everything we've done. That's what he says there in 2 Corinthians 5.10, right? Everything, it doesn't matter whether it's good or evil. We're still going to have to give an account. Do you remember everything you've done? Good? Evil? It amazes me how my mind works. At an instant, I can think of something that happened when I was four years old. By a sight, a sound, a smell, a, a place. It's like, boom, there I am again, right? <laughs> That's going to be scary when I stand before God because I think it's going to be all instantaneous. For the life of me, there are things I don't want to remember and I don't remember right now. But I will remember at some point. And even those things that I am ashamed of now, the point is this, in Christ, they're forgiven, they're gone, they're removed, and he doesn't remember them. All right? That's what he says. He will forgive us our sins and, and he will remove them as far as the east is from the west. He will remember our sins no more. Paul's answer here is that we will have to answer for how we have despised our weaker brother and how we've condemned our stronger brothers in matters of our own opinion, which really are indifferent. And he closes out this little section there in verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm not going to be standing there pointing fingers at you, saying, oh, you see what he did. You know, no. Myself. And you're going to have to do that. The question is, when you do stand there on that judgment day, Will your lawyer be present? Mine's already there waiting. And his name is Jesus. And he is interceding on my behalf right now. And he will do the same thing for you. And he will take whatever wrong you have done. And he will take the penalty for what it should be. All right? But if you've not hired him... Well, don't worry about it. He's a public defender. <laughs> he doesn't cost you anything. All right? And he wants to speak on your behalf to his father who is going to judge all of this. And he wants to say, I took his penalty on the cross. He was united with me in his faith, his confession, his baptism, his repentance, his, his living his life trying to be good. I, I accept him. And if God can accept us, we need to accept one another. 
if you need to make a decision for Christ, Paul, it's the best thing you can do. But it's your choice today. You can either do it this morning, or you can put it off. But I can't tell you how long you got, because he won't tell me either. All right? You don't know when. But if you need to give your life to Christ, man, why are you waiting? 